So every moment of every day, dear Christian, when you are fatigued, weary, lacking wisdom, lacking strength, you could continually draw near to God in prayer and in worship, asking him to renew you because of who he is. And you could know that God is a fountain that never runs dry, that he will continually be the source of our life now and forever. Welcome back to Midweek Musings. I'm Pastor Taylor and here again with Pastor Daniel, my co-host. We're excited to jump into our discussion of Isaiah chapter 40 verses 12 to 31. But before we do that, we'd like to briefly chat about this past week and where we're at with the midterm elections and how we might reflect and think about them in a Christian way. Mm. And so Pastor Daniel, you shared on social media a post that I found very helpful, very insightful. And in it, you pointed out the need for us to accept our pilgrim identity as Christians. Can you explain what you mean by that and how it shapes our approach to politics? Yeah, you know, Jeremiah is another major prophet with Isaiah. And in Jeremiah 29, verse 7, he is talking to the exiles in Babylon. And he's instructing them about their conduct as they live in a city that's not their actual home. And one of the things he says there in Jeremiah 21 is to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, to pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. And I think especially with that situation and maybe like Daniel living in Babylon and um, in other situations like that, Christians today have a lot to, to glean from how God's people lived in the past. And there God is instructing his exiles to a certain kind of conduct in light of the fact that they are in a city that's not their ultimate home, um, yet the Lord has purposes for them for that season of exile that they're in. And the three things I mentioned from that passage that apply to us today as well is, first, that call to pray for the various cities that God has placed us in. Uh, the Lord is the one who raises up in his sovereignty the rulers and kings of this earth, and he's the one who brings them down ultimately. And he's also the one who is pleased to save those who are in authority. And so we pray for those things. And second, we are called there to seek the peace of the city. So when we think about voting or engaging in politics, it's just one avenue to engage in promoting our neighbor's good and promoting policies and candidates that would bring glory to God and hopefully promote a level of stability, a level of righteousness and justice in our land. But finally, I think probably most important perhaps is God calling his people not to put their ultimate hope uh, in man or in the city that they're living in, but to put their hope in God. And he tells them in verse 14 about how one day he will restore them. He will restore their fortunes and he will bring them back uh, from the places where he sent them into exile. And there's a reminder there that Babylon is not their ultimate home, right? California is not our ultimate home. Uh, wherever we're living is not our ultimate home, but God has promised a new creation. He's promised to, uh, to bring an eternal city uh, through Jesus Christ. And so we are called to labor faithfully in our current cultural moment, but to always keep our eyes fixed on that hope. I love that. So helpful in framing our understanding and our own orientation to the culture around us, the world that we live in. Pray for the place where God has put us. Seek the peace of that place. And also put not our hope in man, but in God. Uh, so helpful. Thank you, Pastor Daniel. Yeah, and connected with this, brother, uh, you preached from Isaiah this past Sunday, chapter 40, verses 12 through 31. And that also shows us the glory of God and the mightiness of God, and also the temptations we might be faced with when we engage in politics, 
Uh, but what's the main point of that sermon that you preached and how does it instruct our faith, especially in times like this? The Israelites, when Isaiah spoke to them, they were dreading their upcoming captivity in Babylon that you were just talking about from Jeremiah. So that was before them in their future and they were scared and they were filled with doubts about what would happen to them and where God would be in this process. And so they doubted God's faithfulness to them. How could God let this happen to his people, they thought. And they thought that God had forgotten about them or disregarded them altogether. And so in that moment, Isaiah knows their hearts. And so what does he do for them? Well, he knew that they'd be tempted to run off to all kinds of different idols to seek comfort and security in their distress, their fear, uh, to try and find that comfort, especially in idols. And that's why Isaiah, throughout this passage, compares and contrasts the one true God with all false gods. For that reason, Isaiah gives them theology proper. That is a study of who God is, a majestic portrayal of who the Lord God is. And he tells them in verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. In that, Isaiah intends that our senses be struck by the majesty of who God is, the mighty creator and the sovereign king over all the nations, the one who does not grow weary or does not faint He is infinite in his might and his power and his strength. Not only that, Isaiah tells us that the Lord is the one who promises to give strength to those who turn to him in their distress. And that's so important and applicable for the Israelites and also for us. And so Isaiah's main point is this, that the more we revere the Lord God, then the more we will run to him by faith and so be renewed by his grace. And that's what Isaiah wants. He wants God's people to run to him by faith, to be renewed by his grace. Now, the opposite is true, too, which is what Isaiah is warning us about. The less we revere God, then the more we will run to false gods, idols of different kinds. And the more we do that, the more we will ruin ourselves. For the Israelites, they were tempted to run to the religion of Baal and the many pagan gods of their day. And Isaiah shows them just how ridiculous that would be for them to do. And this very much applies to our own current moment. Uh, We tie our joy, security, and hope to things like the results of the elections in the world. And we, in that way, are turning politics into a false god, uh, attaching too much of our own well-being, personally and spiritually, with what's happening in the world. And when we do that, it will ruin us. And in fact, politics is really an undercurrent to this whole passage in Isaiah, because throughout it, Isaiah shows us that the nations, even the powerhouse of the day, like Babylon, are like nothing before the Lord. Isaiah says that they're like dust on a scale or a drop in a bucket before the Lord God. In other words, God is by no means overwhelmed by them. How could the mighty creator who finely tuned this universe for life and sustains even the most distant galaxy be phased by a puny man. He's not, not at all. And he has all things under his perfect control, which is what Isaiah is trying to help the Israelites see in his own day. And also the spirit is trying to help us see as well. Now, Pastor Daniel, can you help me flesh out what I mean here about turning politics into a false God and how this is relevant for us, especially in these times? 
Sure, brother. You know, politics in and of themselves, right, are not bad. They're ordained of God in many ways, we could say, rooted in his structure for this world. But like anything that is good, it could be distorted by sin. And for us as Christians, um, we could find ourselves distorting our political engagement when we define ourselves or think of ourselves primarily as Republican, liberal, libertarian first and not Christians, right? When we give ourselves over to a particular viewpoint politically and we hold that above the word of God and, and maybe even use the word of God to promote things that are in that party versus allowing God's word to inform everything about our political engagement, then we're engaging in a kind of political idolatry where we're putting our hope and our trust in politics, we're putting our faith in the platform and not holding our politicians and our own uh, local leaders accountable to the things that God word says. And so we're tempted, again, to define ourselves in that way. And we live in a very tribalistic world, especially in our culture that is feeding that. And another way we're tempted to is we just simply put too much trust in men to save us. And we don't look to the Lord enough, right? Psalm 146 says, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. All of the major rulers, princes, presidents, prime ministers, all of them are going to be a footnote in history, the history that God is unfolding. And you think of all the many great names of old, even from the scriptural times, Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and Nero and many others, right? They're all now footnotes in this history of God's story. And so we need to remember the Lord who is unfolding his purposes. And we need to remember that even the weapons that God gives to his church are not earthly, they're not carnal, they're not political in the ways that people think of politics, but they're spiritual and they have power to destroy spiritual strongholds and to fight against that true enemy that we're ultimately facing as the church, which is the devil and his foes. And so in that fight, we are called to take hold of the Lord and to remember in humility uh, that in and of ourselves, we can't win, but in the Lord, we can do all things. Amen, brother. That's so good. And yeah, it's important, as you mentioned in the beginning there, that politics are good and useful in a limited sense. God has ordained things like government for the preservation of this world. But like you've mentioned, our heart's allegiance and hope must ultimately be tied to God and his promises, not to the governments of this world or to any politician themselves. And so our allegiance and heart's hope must be with God and the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. And that's why Isaiah in this passage reveals us who God is. He first does that with a series of rhetorical questions, questions to which Isaiah already knows the answer. He's drawing out truths uh, by way of questioning them. He also, in this gives us language that describes the fine-tuning of the universe, showing us that the whole creation is a work of God's intelligent, precise design. Isaiah used words like, he measured it, he marked it off, enclosed it, and weighed it. These are terms that refer to, say, an engineer or an architect reviewing their final work, making sure that all the calculations are correct. Now, even though he was not religious, the astronomer Sir Fred Hoyle famously said this, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. 
And that's what Isaiah wants us to see, that we live in a vast universe, not that was monkeyed with, but that was finely tuned for beautiful life by God in his infinite wisdom. And Isaiah speaks of that infinite wisdom of God, referring to his understanding that is unsearchable unsearchable. Job 38 verse 16 uses that same word saying, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? The vast ocean is 80% unexplored. It's massive. There are places that we as humans will not reach and search out. But here's the thing. The ocean is vast and deep, but it is searchable. We can search it out. Whereas God's genius, Isaiah has said, his intellect, his understanding is not searchable. We can't search it out. We can't know God as he knows himself. Isaiah is describing here for us the creator-creature distinction. In fact, only the spirit knows the mind of God. And that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10, for the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And so only The three persons of the Trinity fully understand the depths of God, whereas we are on the outside. We can't fully know God as he knows himself. In the third century, theologian Novation wrote this, and it's a beautiful quote. He says, For what can you fittingly either say or think concerning him who is greater than all thoughts, except that in one manner we shall mentally grasp what God is, if we shall consider that he is that which cannot be understood, either in quality or quantity. And so he's saying that it's not that God is just bigger and better than we are, that is quantity. He is qualitatively distinct of a different kind of being altogether. And Novation goes on to say, what can you worthily say of him who is loftier than all sublimity and higher than all height and deeper than all depth and clearer than all light and brighter than all brightness more brilliant than all splendor, stronger than all strength, more powerful than all power, and more mighty than all might, and greater than all majesty, and more potent than all potency, and richer than all riches, and more wise than all wisdom, and better than all goodness, juster than all justice, more merciful than all clemency. And he concludes saying this, it may truly be said that God is that which is such that nothing can be compared to him for he is above all that can be said. We hit a limit with our human language when we're talking about God. Nothing can be said to fully capture in words his majesty. And what is, Pastor Daniel, the proper response to this presentation of the Holy One? Yeah, it's it's humble praise and worship of God. You know, we study who God is and and understand something of who he is because he's revealed himself in his word, right? Apart from that revelation, we would never know God. But because he has revealed himself and we get to see something of the greatness and the glory of God through his word and in Christ, uh, we're humbled to, to praise the Lord for who he is and for what he's done. And that's what Isaiah is pointing us to, right? His character and the greatness of God and what he's done, his creation and his care for us. And this is a fitting response something that paul highlights himself from romans chapter 11 in verse 33 and 36 in light of redemption and who god is paul says oh the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable are his judgments 
and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, quoting from Isaiah, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. And doxology, that that praise of God is a way that we do revere him. And revering God is recognizing his greatness and responding with humble praise. And so, yeah, when we come up against in scripture, the greatness of God as he reveals himself, the fitting response, as you said, Pastor Daniel, is doxology, to praise him. Mm-hmm. And how is this, brother, this truth presented by Isaiah, renewing and reshaping your own heart? Well, it comforts me, this passage, because when I am weak, fatigued, exhausted, and scared of the future as well, that God wants me to lift up my eyes, to revere him above all else, to run to him by faith, with the promise that he gives me in this passage, that when I do, he will renew my strength. And it reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 to 17. We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so I have the promise. We have the promise as we run to God by faith that he is renewing our souls, our inner self, by the Spirit of God, whom he has sent through the mediation of Jesus. And he is making us into the image of Jesus in our spiritual life. And when Jesus returns, our King, he will renew our bodies with the power of his resurrection, even raising us up from the dust itself and giving us new life. And so though I lose this world through Christ, I gain eternal life and the world to come, which is where, as we said earlier, our citizenship lies in heaven with Christ. And so it's a great comfort, this passage. And also it, uh, it corrects me. It corrects me in the sense that it warns me not to run to those false gods with vain promises of hope and salvation. And if I do, and the more I do, it will be to my ruin. And I need those warnings to keep me on the straight and narrow path. That's a good word, brother, that comfort and correction. And again, Isaiah says here in verse 28, taking all of that theology of who God is and his creation, his intimacy with how he's made this world and his sovereignty, and then he applies it, right? Like you said, to renew us. And he says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. I love how in the sermon you spent time in that section of renewing of our strength. And and that when God does that, he doesn't himself diminish in strength, right? Mm-hmm. God is a is a being that doesn't draw strength or life or help from anyone outside of himself, mm-hmm. right? In theology, we call that God's aseity. He has life in himself. And he doesn't diminish in his strength when he actually gives us life. So every moment of every day, dear Christian, when you are fatigued, weary, lacking wisdom, lacking strength, you could continually draw near to God in prayer and in worship, asking him to renew you because of who he is. And you could know that God is a fountain that never runs dry, that he will continually be the source of our life now and forever. And so we could continually go before him and remember that, 
you know, we're going to grow tired. Even the youth, right, shall faint and be weary, uh, but not the Lord, right? I love uh, Psalm 121, right? The Lord is your keeper and he will not slumber or sleep. (laughs) He doesn't need naps like us or rest or siestas, uh, but he's the God who renews the strength of his people. And so I just love the the beautiful connection that you brought for us on Sunday of, you know, that that power of God and the, the call to revere him because of who he is. And then there's that beautiful connection of how well, God uses his power to renew us when we stop running to idols and we look to the living Lord. And so thank you again for that comfort and that correction. And how does this passage, brother, show us the Lord Jesus? Well, remarkably, as you were just saying, this God whom we are considering is the, the self-originating creator, the only one who exists in and of himself and has life in and of himself and is that fountain that never runs dry. And yet, in the person work of Jesus, we find that the Creator God made himself vulnerable. He humbled himself and in weakness took on our own human nature in order to be also the self-giving Savior who gave of his own life, gave up his own body to death itself in order to give us eternal life through him. And so his promises in this passage to renew our strength are yes and amen through the person and work of Jesus because he was crushed on the cross for us and sapped of all life in our place on the cross in order to fill us with his own life. And that's why ultimately we need to run to Jesus. He is the God of this passage come in human flesh for us. He is the one who says to us, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the Holy One who came to redeem us. God has not forgotten his people. He remembered his promises of old. He is faithful and true, and Jesus will redeem and renew all who go to him in their weakness by simple faith in his love for us. Amen. Yeah, that creator-creature divide that you mentioned earlier, that distinction, which is so important to remember it's incredible in the gospel how God crossed the divide, yeah, <laughs> entered into creation. And that is just shocking in many ways as we even approach Christmas. We're going to be mm. thinking about that and the incarnation, right, of God in human flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, right, to come and to save us. And something that we already get a wonderful glimpse of in Isaiah already. And so thank you for showing that to us, brother. And uh, off of that, too, a shameless plug up and coming for our Advent series, we'll be considering the servant songs in Isaiah, which uh, will begin here shortly in Isaiah 42 and and some chapters later. And so Isaiah himself uh, is developing this thought that Mm. the Lord God chose to come as a servant to Mm. suffer in our place in order to redeem us and fulfill those promises. Amen. Yeah. Lastly, brother, it's such a rich passage of scripture, Isaiah 40, but which verse do you recommend we commit to memory from this passage? The one that stands out to me is the last verse in the chapter, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's a good verse, brother. Indeed, dear listener, we pray that even this Midweek musing is a help to you and to renew your strength as you hear the word of God from Isaiah. And we pray that this week you will be able to wait upon the Lord, uh, to praise him, and to be filled with 
his power as you wait upon him. Thank you for listening to this week's Midweek Musings. We look forward to bringing you another one next week.